Assalamu alaikum, good morning and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Samad Khan, you're listening live to Weekend World on today, Sunday the 18th of February 2024. The time is two minutes past ten. On Weekend World we go behind the week's news, we go behind the headlines and uh, take a in-depth perspective on things that have been happening and look at them from an Islamic perspective. And um, I have the privilege of having uh, a variety of guests discuss the week's news with me on a on a regular basis. Uh, in, a, in a few moments from now, we'll have the opportunity to speak with uh, Dr. Abdul Aleem um, to talk about uh, what's been happening in the week's news. The main thing that has been happening, the main thing that we're going to be discussing this week is again uh, the very sad situation that is happening in the Middle East, the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas with the very sad consequences for the people of Gaza. The um, United Nations uh, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, um, releases a, a regular um, uh, overview of things that are happening um, in that part of the world. Uh, and uh, they produced, two days ago, they produced... Um, uh, a further update, and, the, and they described it as a snapshot, providing an overview of the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And and uh, the UN OCHA office is really only only interested in that perspective on on the uh, humanitarian crisis. They're a, an apolitical organisation, um, and they they say that they're highlighting the severity of humanitarian conditions facing 2.3 million people in Gaza. And remember, Gaza is a strip of land. A very narrow, uh, long strip of land uh, where 2.3 million people are, are uh, live, uh, and um, are under huge amounts of um, distress and duress. So far, uh, we have seen 28,775 fatalities, many of whom are women and children. More than 68,000 people injured and injured in the context of a healthcare infrastructure that is almost non-existent now. 1.7 million people out of that 2.3 million people are internally displaced, which is to say that they have been uh, forced to move out of their houses. And in many cases, those houses have then been completely destroyed. Um, and uh, the... Uh, the tragedy really continues from from that perspective as as many of the um uh, individuals involved and we've discussed this many times on on this program before our children um and they re- really are suffering the brunt of everything that is that is happening as a result of uh, Israel's actions in Gaza uh, and the, the there's there's no uh, doubt or question about this. We watch on our TV screens and on our phones, really every single day, um, reporting from Gaza uh, to have an understanding of exactly what is what is happening. And um, we've seen more than seventy thousand housing units uh, destroyed, uh, and many hundreds of thousands of them damaged. Food security is a huge issue. And uh, UNOCHA reports that 2.2 million people are at imminent risk of famine. 
Let that sink in for a moment. 2.2 million people are at imminent risk of famine. And if this situation were to occur in any other context, then you would see um, huge amounts of uh, public outcry. There would be money being raised for food to be sent out to this part of the world uh, as an emergency. And, and yet we have seen international governments cut funding to the very uh, organizations that are there to protect and look after um, the people of Gaza. And some people might ask the question, that why why is it that the people of Gaza need help from the international community? Why can't they sort out their own affairs? And uh, the reality is, and these and this comes from reports from the UN and other independent organisations, uh, that over the last um, more than a decade now, because of restriction put in put in place by Israel, um, you you cannot easily get. Um, goods and services into or out of Gaza. And those uh, sanctions essentially on the people of Gaza have led to um, a complete destruction of um, any meaningful economic activity within Gaza, uh, which has uh, led to the fact that um, the vast majority of people within Gaza are completely reliant on international aid. So this is a situation created as a result of uh, the the actions of of the Israeli government, um, and uh, and we are seeing now the consequences of this um, being made much much worse as a result of the ongoing hostilities and the uh, 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 and the deaths of many many um, thousands of people. Uh, and I have uh, Dr. Aleem uh, on the line now. Assalamualaikum, Dr. Aleem. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me. And I, I just gave a brief overview, a brief summary of, of what what's happening there. And, and many people who um, listen to this program will know that we, we um, speak in the context of um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, that the, the Voice of Islam radio station is, um, uh, is, is a part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. With an aim to to speak um, from an Islamic perspective, um, it's worth saying that Hazrat uh, Mizam Masroodam, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we we get a lot of the the direction for for what we say and what we do from from him, and he has been a passionate voice for peace over the last many many decades, calling out the policies and the practices of international governments in terms of uh, what they're doing and in terms of injustice and in terms of the consequences of their actions on ordinary people. And very recently in his Friday sermon, uh, just two days ago, uh, speaking about the ongoing conflict, um, His Holiness, as a Muslim, Masrur Ahmed said, the fire of war is spreading and major powers either by choice or fear of Israel, side with everything its government says. And he was speaking in the context of the fact that his concern was that this ongoing conflict could then spill out into other parts of the Middle East and with the risk that uh, we're going to get um, uh, the possibility of a, of a wider conflict, the possibility of, of a, a world war, which is something that he has warned about on many, many occasions. And it's perhaps easy for us to look at our TV screens and, and say, oh, it's it's another action by Israel. 
really the scale of this is something that we have not seen. Uh, and even though the Palestinian people have been suffering for more than 70 years as a result of um, the actions of the Israeli, of, of various Israeli governments um, uh, in, in terms of the displacement, in terms of the persecution of Palestinian people in that part of the world, this is something that we haven't seen on this scale um, for a very, very long time. Um, and and your your thoughts, first of all, Dr. Lim, on, on the words of um, His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Suram. Indeed, I think uh, he's been uh, mentioning now for a few weeks um, his worry and concern about uh, the uh, possible spread of this uh, war across the Middle East. Um, and we also know that, um, you know, there is now, as the, uh, as the, uh, people in Gaza have moved down to the south and now are sort of confined to an area equal to the Heathrow Airport, actually, where you have now mm. uh, about 1.5, 1.6 million people living uh, in the uh, in the square meters or square miles of what Heathrow Airport consists of. You can imagine the the uh, level of density of population in that area. And the consequences of now any operation on that population density uh, would be catastrophic for uh, for uh, you know humanity in general and of course for Palestinians in particular. And I think he's been mentioning this uh, and also saying that it does seem that uh, the uh, Israeli far right government and we make a distinction between you know, Israeli people and their government, because mm. sometimes we know that many governments do not fully reflect what people say, although in this case, polls do show a majority of Israelis supporting their government uh, action, uh, that it's, it does seem that uh, uh, despite the ICJ ruling, uh, there has been no uh, actual uh, response or compliance from the government of Israel. Uh, Experts do note that there has been a visible uh, and measurable reduction in the statements of intent of uh, genocide, mm. which were very frequent on media, on recordings of uh, you know soldiers on TikTok and other places. That seems to be the only thing that has sort of uh, uh, been reduced to a large extent. But the behavior doesn't seem to have changed, and that is a real cause of concern because it does seem that most politicians and the people who have some possibility to really stop it uh, have not been able to change the, this, uh, this uh, behavior that is really resulting in large-scale uh, loss of human life and tragic human life. But just to add to what you had, uh, come, uh, what you had said about the background, um, you know, uh, Gaza came into blockade in 2006, and since then uh, there has been, of course, a very comprehensive blockade on that territory. Mm. Uh, it is now said that uh, there has been a calculation of the number of calories that each Gazan gets, actually, uh, since 2006. So there has been a fairly uh, strict control of the amount of calories that each uh, Gazan uh, person can actually have through the controls that are instituted at the borders. Um, the other thing that has been happening is that, uh, uh, you know, as you said, there's a, of course has been always a 50% unemployment in Gaza, 
and most uh, uh, Gazans have lived uh, on the aid of the external world, which was coming through mostly Rafah and the Jordanian border, mm-hmm. uh, almost 500 trucks every day, which has, of course, come to a trickle now. Uh, but also that the... Uh, the the, the 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 starvation has uh, now reached to a very uh, alarming extent mm. and uh, and if 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 there is uh, you know the other part now is that if there is even no military action and the aid doesn't get through then you would actually have because of the blockage of the water and food you actually have diseases rampant and mm. people just might die of those diseases and this would still be uh, a, a calculated action to get rid of uh, of a population. So, one would think that the uh, judgment of the ICJ on the on this being a plausible genocide uh, is still uh, still holds and might actually become uh, now a, a, rea- a reality, which would then uh, fully indict uh, the far right government in Israel. Hmm. We will thank you for that, Flynn. We'll talk in a few minutes about. Uh, genocide and what what does genocide mean as far as international law is concerned and in this context in the context of this conflict and the ongoing issues between um, Israel and and the Palestinian people why have we got to the point where people are discussing genocide at all so what what are the criteria for genocide how might they be met in these circumstances Um, and it's important to recognize that, that for some people this this becomes a, a very emotive issue because, um, and without preempting the things that we're going to discuss later on, the idea of genocide and the Genocide Convention came out on the back of the Second World War. And this specific and explicit example of, of genocide that was given was the um, was was that of the Jewish people in Europe. Um, and the fact that the Nazi machinery was was um, hell bent on on destroying um, uh, Jewish people within Europe, um, and and so to turn that around and to suggest that a um, ethno and religious nationalist state like Israel, which is founded on the idea of being a Jewish nation for Jewish people, is engaged in actions which would constitute genocide um, to some people feels like um, poking at a at a raw wound for a lot of Jewish people. But unfortunately, we can't shy away from what is happening to the Palestinians. Um, and, and, and that is uh, to, to, to not talk about this and to um, essentially use a form of censorship and self-censorship um, of individuals um, because you are somehow anti-Semitic and somehow siding with the with the ideas um, that came about as a result of, of uh, um, Nazi ideology in in the Second World War is is a nonsense and it's a painful nonsense because it, it leads directly to the idea that we we can't discuss the rights of Palestinians without um, being anti-Semitic. And the and the two things are somehow so utterly conflated that even just using the words "free Palestine" somehow become anti-Semitic in nature, and that that's a very painful idea, Doctor Aline. Yes, and I think we talked about it last time also. I think that one of the major successes of 
uh, Zionism that uh, you know started in late 18th century was uh, the the very idea that the um, that being Jewish uh, was linked to being a race and also being a nationality. Um, we see this problem also, you know, in some Muslim countries. Mm. You know, we are very uh, very aware of what Pakistan did when it conflated its national identity with Islam. Um, that led to the uh, excommunication of uh, the Ahmadiyya community in, uh, by through an amendment in 1974. Uh, so, and it has been really destructive for Pakistan's uh, society and, and polity. And I think that uh, um, now, when you criticize Pakistan, you don't. Uh, nobody ever says that you are being Islamophobic. Mm. Uh, and a parallel would be drawn between this and say. If you criticize Israel, you are not being anti-Semitic because these two are very different things. Mm. Judaism is a religion. It's not a nationality. It's not a race. Uh, in fact, uh, we also mentioned this last time that uh, most Palestinians uh, who live uh, where Palestine was uh, are, the re- are, are actually Semites because these were the, uh, the, the these are people who have been living there for thousands of years. Some of them were Jews actually who converted to being Muslims. Mm. So if you're being uh, if if there's anything like anti-Semite, it's actually be uh, talking against Palestinians that would be anti-Semitic also. Mm. Uh, and in fact, uh, in many cases, uh, most Israelis who now live in in Israel actually are migrants from other parts of the world. Uh, most mostly from Eastern European countries. In fact, the far-right Israeli government that is now uh, in control of Israel mostly consists of people coming from Eastern Europe, uh, Polish, uh, Romanian, and other uh, other nationalities. So to say that these people have an indigenous right or a right to live in that part of uh, Palestine, which is now called, called Israel, and the Palestinians do not have any right to, to live in their own indigenous land is a very strange uh, argument to make. And then to say that if you can, if you... Uh, criticize um, the Zionists or Israel, that's anti-Semitism, is weaponizing anti-Semitism and in fact demeaning uh, the the very sacrosanct concept of anti-Semitism like Islamophobia, which is, you know, you cannot really say anything against somebody or target them for their religious identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is what is really uh, happening in terms of discourse where, as you said, uh, a lot of people have been targeted uh, in, in, you know, in society, in journalism, and even in schools and colleges, in academic institutions, where pro-Palestinian, being pro-Palestinian means that you are being pro-Hamas, uh, mm. so that you are already a terrorist. And I must say that uh, in uh, a couple of days back, uh, uh, BBC, in fact, uh, or I think Sky TV actually interviewed Martin Griffith, who's the uh, spokesman for uh, for UN uh, and he clearly mentioned that Hamas is not considered a terrorist organization by the UN mm-hmm. and that is generally true in fact for most of the world except for uh, some of the northern countries that have proscribed Hamas most of the world does not actually consider Hamas a terrorist organization mm-hmm. but uh, but you see how the these concepts are weaponized and and the freedom of speech is curbed through these uh, you know, uh, weaponization of certain concepts, so that the uh, so that the rights of Palestinians are then considered to be an area uh, to be an area where nobody needs to go, so that the slaughter continues and the Palestinians keep suffering 
uh, at the hands of this uh, far-right uh, government in Israel. Thank you, Dr. Raleem. And, and as far as this idea, and I think this is a really important one, this, this idea uh-huh. that um, saying anything against the actions of the Israeli government and the Israeli Defense Force is is somehow anti-Semitic or, or in, in any way expounding any support for the Palestinian people is somehow anti-Semitic, is a, is a dangerous form of censorship. But it, it, and it, and it happens here in this country, it happens in the UK. And we have seen this as protests have continued in, in London. Uh, we've seen politicians um, getting angry. We've, we've seen um, crackdowns in terms of what people can say um, or do uh, on these protest marches. And, and the protest marches, I've seen them, and many others have reported on them. They are extremely peaceful. They are individuals Hello. calling for the rights of the um, Palestinian people. Um, and they are very clear um, in in their uh, uh, in respect of the things that they're they're saying in these protests that they are working towards um, to to push uh, the the politicians of this country and other countries to um, uh, to push Israel to respect the rights of um, civilians within Gaza and not to. Um, Hello. Uh, lead to a situation where, um, uh, not to lead to a situation where those those um, uh, individuals are are being killed. And we, I think, we may have a little problem with with Dr. Aleem. So, uh, give us a few minutes, and we'll get back to this discussion. We're just going to take a, a very short break. Belief in God with His powers is the foremost essential condition of our movement. You should inculcate this belief in your hearts, giving to its implications and requirements which is the first and topmost priority over all considerations of self, over its comforts and relationships. By means of actions in the field of your daily life, with unflinching courage, you should show a steadfast loyalty in his way. Others in this world do not give him preference over material means, and the support they hope to get form their friends and relations. But do you give him the utmost priority so that in heaven you should come to be reckoned as his people? For you, another very essential teaching is that you do not leave the Holy Quran like a book that has been forsaken, since therein lies your life. Those who honour this holy book shall be honoured in heaven. Those who will hold the Holy Quran superior to every tradition and every saying shall be given preference in heaven. For mankind spread over the surface of the earth now, there is no book except the Holy Quran. For the sons of man, there is no messenger and mediator except Muhammad. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So strive and cherish the purest love for this prophet of power and glory, giving no one else any kind of preference over him, so that you may be put down in heaven as those who have been saved. And we're back uh, after that short break and uh, slight technical difficulty there. We've got Dr. Aleem back on the line now. Um, Dr. Aleem, we were just talking about um, this idea of censorship here here in the UK and in, in other Western nations. Um, but the, the same is also true within Israel itself. 
And having having spoken to uh, individuals who have have travelled in Israel and who have seen it with their own eyes, um, and and from reports in the media as well, it's pretty clear that as far as people in Israel is uh, are concerned, they don't really have any idea of what is happening to the Palestinian people in in Gaza. It is not reported in Israeli media. Um, they they don't have an understanding of exactly what is what is happening. How many people are dying? Um, uh, the fact that people are starving to death, and and maybe if they if they did have an idea of the reality, they they wouldn't be supporting their their governments and their politicians as much. And it, and it's pretty clear that what has been created for the vast majority of Israeli people is is an atmosphere of fear um, about being attacked, and and therefore a need to defend themselves. Put very broadly. Uh, and if, as a result of that, some civilians die, then they are casualties of war. Um, but what we're seeing on our screens is obviously a very different picture. And I think in in that lies the lies su- some of the difficulty in in pushing back against a narrative uh, that this is purely to do with, uh, in the words of some politicians, Israel's rights to defend itself. Indeed, and we have talked about this. Um when you mentioned uh, the early analysis of OJA on the current suffering in Palestine, mm. um, I think what we also uh, need to realize is that uh, the Gazan economy is, of course, uh, a lot, dependent a lot on the foreign aid, but also uh, dependent a lot on what Palestinian Gazans can do for their daily living. And most of them actually work as daily wagers uh, in Israel. So they are supposed to be issued passes uh, to get into Israel and be able to carry out daily work. Because of this, we are now hearing that um, there is, of course, labor shortage in Israel, and they are trying to get labor from, uh, you know, from Middle East or from Philippines and other parts of the world. Uh, so essentially what we have here is uh, what Norman uh, Finkelstein, who is a very, very, uh, a famous uh, professor in in the U.S. Uh, and a very uh, very well known expert on uh, on Palestine and the Israel dynamics talks about uh, the concept of uh, master and slave, which is that in one sense with the blockade and with the total dependence on uh, on uh, the permissions of Israel, this is almost akin to uh, Palestinians being uns- enslaved. Mm. And and that sort of dynamic will always result in some sort of violence. Mm. Uh, because, uh, you know, this sort of uh, violence this cannot go on for too long. You cannot really curb or completely suppress a desire of people to be independent and to be fully human. And, and so this is, uh, I think, something that uh, uh, military means cannot really solve. You cannot really completely extinguish somebody's desire to be independent and mm. fully human by just bombing them out. And that's a critical mistake that I believe uh, right now is is, is uh, being committed by Israel. In fact, many experts now believe that what is now happening in Gaza is actually even uh, uh, dangerous for, for Israel. Because in this process, uh, uh, you know, before October 7th, there was really no... Uh, uh, what has now happened is that uh, the action of Israel, uh, in fact, unbridled action after October 7th, have led to the world opinion gradually changing against Israel. Uh, if they had acted with some measured uh, response, 
it would have been possible that the world would have stayed with the fact that they consider Hamas a violent and terrorist organization, and their sympathies would have would still be with Israel. But now the situation is completely turned. And with every day that passes, I believe that any military actions on behalf of Israel actually put the very existence of Israel into, uh, into, into, into danger. And that is why I believe it's important for uh, you know, Israeli people, as you said, uh, they have the 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 media censor has not allowed them to be fully aware of it. But the demonstration in Tel Aviv have been increasing in size, mm. and and we know that uh, Mr. Netanyahu uh, has been holding on to his dear life and to his political uh, position. Uh, and part of the perpetuation of this violence, essentially by the far right government, is because Mr. Netanyahu has been holding on to his. Uh, dear life, because we all know that uh, he was uh, about to be indicted for corruption and would have spent most of his life in jail. That is the reason perhaps why at this point in time there has been no real reaction on the behavior of the Israeli army because it's been led by Mr. Netanyahu. And I believe that uh, until that happens, uh, in fact, some people argue that uh, Mr. Netanyahu should be given a way out uh, because he believes uh, it's, uh, it appears that his uh, perpetuation of this war is meant to prolong his uh, his uh, stay in power because uh, he sees a very bleak scenario. If he doesn't wage the war, he will probably be ousted. And that mm. one is one of the reasons why this is actually continuing. And it's really painful to see that, um, that we have the far-right leader within a, um, a, a state which is rampant with a form of religious nationalism um leading to the persecution of a um of an ethnic group and and its continued um oppression to the extent where um those actions have the potential to lead to their extermination which kind of brings us all the way around to this idea of of genocide again but before we before we get into that, I'd just like to talk about a couple of things which have happened in the last week, which have started to shift the dynamic a little bit. Now we've we've seen throughout this war, we talked about Gaza as being this this very small and and highly overpopulated strip of land, and throughout this war, um, the the Israeli government has made a big deal out of the fact that it has warned civilians to move uh, before bombing. Now, it, that's easier said than done, and, and uh, if you are of limited means, uh, disabled, um, don't have family support or infrastructure, the idea of just being able to move out of your home to then look over your shoulder and watch it be destroyed is, um, is far easier said than done. But nonetheless, this is, this is what has happened. It has led to the displacement, as we said at the beginning of the program, of 1.7 million people out of their homes. And, and a corralling of these people into a very small strip of land. And the vast majority of internally displaced people have made their way down to Rafa. And Rafa is a border town between Egypt and um, Gaza. Um, and, uh, and split down the middle. And on the Gazan side, we have huge refugee camps now, camps for in internally displaced people, uh, with many hundreds of thousands of, of people with no facilities, no f clean water, um, no toilet facilities, no food, no education, no hospitals, a really dire situation. They've all been told to go there 
um, so that um, Hamas can be destroyed and ousted without them coming to harm, even though they're coming to huge harm. And now we see Netanyahu saying that he is going to bomb Rafa or expand military operations into Rafa. And he said this a week ago, and then a couple of days later, Israel launched a series of strikes, which killed dozens of people there. But now the international community is going, hang on a second, you're going a bit too far. And that, and this is a red line. And we have seen condemnation, or at least criticism, from a number of Western nations who are um, generally supportive of Israel and its actions um, in respect of, of uh, what is happening there. Um, and and this is this is clearly very problematic because um, any pretense uh, that um, protecting civilians is paramount within this conflict has has now just been um, shown to be a naked lie. Uh, we have seen um, all of these uh, citizens, women, children moved into this area, and then it is being attacked. And the United Nations described the situation in Rafa as a pressure cooker of despair um, with severe humanitarian implications. Um, and uh, as as we said earlier, the residents of Rafa have huge challenges, no food, water, health care, education, um, huge infrastructure damage. And, and then on top of that now, the real possibility that many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals will be killed because of the military action of Israel in that part of the world where all of these people people have been have been kettled into. Um, and and this this situation is as I said, it really just um, underlines how little regard the Israeli um, government and the IDF, uh, appears to have for um, Palestinian civilians, innocent Palestinian civilians in this conflict. This is, uh, as I, as you mentioned last time, I think, and uh, His Holiness, uh, uh, the head of the Ahmadi movement, has also, um, you know, shared his concern mm. that this is not going to stop actually, and uh, you know. Uh, and sometimes one wonders what is the reason why it cannot be stopped. Uh, and uh, we'll just, I'll just uh, briefly just, you know, come to that a bit later. But just to say that um, the, there is now, of course, information that, um, that Egypt is being pressured into creating some sort of a facility where the possibility of the Palestinians getting out of Rafah into Sinai would be a, uh, would be a scenario. Uh, the other possibility that the uh, Israeli uh, spokespeople talked about yesterday was that some people might be moved back up into north. But those, both of these possibilities seemed very remote. And mm. uh, our, our real worry is that this uh, might lead to, in fact, uh, a historic massacre of proportions that haven't been seen since the Second World War. Mm. Um, you know, 1.5 million, 1.6 million people might perish. And from all, uh, uh, you know, indications at this moment, it does seem that there seems to be no way out and there seem to be no, uh, you know, the Israeli government has talked about the fact that they will actually prepare a plan because uh, Mr. Biden, the U.S. president, has talked about not moving into Rafah without a plan. 
but nobody has e- yet seen a plan for how to evacuate the 1.5 million people cattled into that small area equal to Heathrow Airport in the Rafah city. Mm. So I think that uh, I think that that's uh, that is um, you know a real concern. And uh, the question of why this cannot be stopped is really, really uh, the other one, which is that we haven't talked about this, but you know that there has been a huge amount of violence in the West Bank. Mm. Uh, over 400 people have been killed, and those people who talk about uh, you know everything being Hamas and you know uh, this is a defense of Israel and you know anti-terror activity uh, can't really ever justify what is happening in West Bank, where there is actually no Hamas and. Palestinian Authority has been very compliant to Israeli demands. Uh, but also the fact that there is uh, an open war going out, uh, going on in the north of Israel with Hezbollah, which is the, uh, which is what they call the Iranian proxy in Lebanon. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, Hezbollah is so, has its own stand. It's a very, very powerful political entity in Lebanon. Um, and it is as much dependent on uh, perhaps uh, it has a relationship with Iran as, as Israel has a relationship with the U.S. So, you know, we don't talk about uh, American-backed Israel regime, Israeli regime, but when we talked about Hezbollah, we always mentioned Iran's backed mm. uh, Hezbollah. Uh, but anyway, I think that uh, there is a very uh, likely possibility that that uh, situation might escalate. And it's been escalating. There is about 60 to 70,000 Israelis who have been evacuated from the northern border and are living now in hotels and other places in, in, in parts of Israel. And Hezbollah has been, uh, they both have been managing an escalation. But the fact is that if things go south uh, in the southern border of Israel, in Gaza and in, in Rafah, then that might escalate. And you know, uh, Hezbollah has been uh, has defeated Israel once before in an earlier war, and they are very, very well equipped. So the fear is that uh, if it does come down to an all-out war on the northern front, and Hezbollah starts using its uh, arsenal of uh, you know uh, large missiles and other uh, uh, weaponry, then uh, the likelihood that the Israelis might use their nuclear weapons becomes very, very concrete. And that is the real fear that I think uh, is uh, is keeping uh, the Western governments from taking uh, any action and and forcing the Israeli far right government to to stop this. The other part of this is that uh, you know the weapons keep flowing into Israel, and uh, you know recently the U.S. government just passed a huge sixty billion dollar bill, which includes more help for Israel, of course, for Ukraine too. But uh, you know. Uh, uh, there are, of course, some governments like the, the like in Holland, the Dutch Supreme Court actually banned uh, arms exports uh, to Israel by the Dutch uh, by by Holland. But you know, weapons keep flowing, and the fact is that uh, uh, Western ammunition depletion is at an alarming rate. So that they now keep saying that they cannot even replace their own. Uh, military uh, hardware because of rapid uh, escalation in Israel. Uh, estimates show that uh, 65 tons of uh, uh, of ammunition or bombs have been rained on Gaza, and uh, every person in Gaza has had about 28 kilograms of TNT showered on them. Hmm. This is the highest amount of uh, you know. Uh, uh, ammunition used on any uh, person in modern war history, in fact. Uh, and we have, we also know that this is equivalent to almost three atom bombs which were 
you know, uh, thrown on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Mm. So, you know, the situation is, is really, really dire. And I think that many of us who just see clips of this happening on television and parts of this where we see that uh, when even when Israel warns people, uh, it is almost impossible to move people out of the hospital. Yesterday, day before yesterday, five people died in Nasser Hospital because Israel asked for an evacuation. Mm. And uh, you know, the machines did not operate and doctors had to leave. And five uh, patients who were in the ICU died, actually, during their process. We all saw the pictures coming out of uh, Gaza where children uh, in the northern in the northern part of Gaza were left to to die and decompose their bodies were seen yesterday decomposing in hospitals because nobody ever came back to get them because mm-hmm. of the fact that most people had already moved to the south so i think the situation is indescribable it's extremely painful in fact words fail to meet to to do any justice to the kind of suffering that we are seeing and yet there seems to be uh, you know, no concerted action on on part of the governments who are continuing to arm Israel uh, because their own war industry actually uh, profits from this. Mm. Yesterday we heard that um, the reason why this bill was passed in the U.S. Uh, Senate for providing more aid to Israel and clearing of more military uh, aid to Israel was because most of this aid comes back to the 40 states in the U.S. where most of the military industrial complex industries are operating. So most of this money actually goes back to making those people rich uh, who are uh, participants in the military industrial complex. And these are the people who hold powerful lobbies that actually advocate on behalf of this complex to the U.S. Congress. And so essentially this is a very vicious cycle where, you know, some uh, greedy corporations are making a huge amount of money and and there is really no political means to actually sanction them because this is all legal in the U.S. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the influence of IPAC, which is now very clear, uh, both in the U.S. and in the, in the U.K., where there is, of course, a very strong lobby to... Uh, also keep the arms flowing into into Israel. So I think that uh, that as, as we have talked about, uh, this is also to a certain extent the demise of uh, democratic norms and representational politics in parts of the Western world, which is even a larger tragedy because you know now this means that uh, the West that had led the world in terms of uh, noble uh, endeavors to create these uh, institutions like the UN and human rights instruments uh, like the Genocide Convention and many, many uh, large conventions that have been on top of the civilizational uh, discussions and discourse around the world are gradually being eroded. And the West will not ever recover from this, uh, from this huge tragedy that mm. is now unfolding in front of us. Thank you, Dr. Aleem. And, and- and I guess this is the this is the the big worry, the big concern, the delegitimization of this narrative now after the Second World War that somehow uh, Western nations are the protectors of of democracy, of human rights, of the rights of individuals to be able to um, thrive and to live peaceful lives. Um, I think we've we've seen over the last many many decades that those rules do not apply to people in uh, countries uh, where where most people um, are uh, are Muslim or where people have brown skin uh, I mean we can we can name many many situations over the last um, 70 years since the 
since the Second World War where where that has been the case and and many people have been um, ha- have have suffered as a result of of, of conflict um, and and this um, uh, to to uh, this hypocritical narrative um, that that somehow this is this is about protecting this this ideal of democracy when it's really about protecting uh, individuals and and their uh, their um, their ability to to make money and for corporations and their ability to make money. You spoke about the Nasser Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus there, and I just wanted to mention that because this, this has now been very widely reported by by many many news organisations, um, including the BBC, that that um, the Israeli Defence Force um, uh, attacked the hospital. Uh, in order to find, according to them, um, uh, individuals from Hamas, and because there there had been evidence that refugees, uh, uh, sorry, that the hostages may have been uh, kept there. Now they didn't find any hostages, but they uh, claimed to have found a number of individuals that they arrested. But but attacking a hospital, just to be clear, under international humanitarian law, health establishments. Uh, and units, including hospitals, should not be attacked. That's this is this is this is part of the Geneva Convention, um, and this protection extends to the wounded and the sick, as well as to medical staff and means of of, of transport, so ambulances. Um, under very specific circumstances, um, the, those rules can be suspended. Um, so, if if someone was standing on top of a, a hospital building and uh, shooting rockets directly at um, uh, uh, enemy forces um, in those circumstances you can attack those individuals because they're standing in, on top of the hospital this is not what happened here and we've seen videos and we've seen images of of people uh, sick uh, people being rushed through corridors in smoke-filled corridors and, and scenes of chaos and the, the spokesperson uh, for the health ministry um uh, has has been very clear that this this entire situation um, is um, has has caused huge problems for for the hospital and for for patients uh, in inside the hospital and as you said leading leading to the deaths of some of some uh, uh, patients there in the hospital but this is part of a of a a pattern of behaviour where we've seen the suspension of these international norms that you referred to Dr Aline. And and part of this has also, as we mentioned at the very beginning, been uh, part of this worrying trend where we've seen a delegitimization of any idea of humanitarian aid being provided to the Palestinian people. And this started with the suspension of funding to to UNRWA on the back of um, claims by the Israeli government, which the details of which seem to seem to not have come forward at all, despite um, the, those. Um, details being asked for in many, many different channels. Claims that there were some individuals within UNRWA who were part of the um, uh, attacks by by Hamas uh, on on Israel. Um, but we've, as a result of that, we've we've seen a situation where UNRWA is being is uh, has had its funding cut, is being delegitimized, uh, and the the um, Commissioner General of UNRWA has been very clear. That he sees this this um, entire thing as being about um, 
trying to completely defund and, and defunct UNRWA um, uh, in order to, to delegitimize the, the, the mandate in support of the UN mandate in support of the Palestinian people. Um, and and this is this is incredibly concerning, incredibly worrying um, in terms of of uh, the consequences that it that it might have for the Palestinian people moving forward, not just now and not just in this situation. Um, and um, just 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 on that, I mean, the the um, just just to quote um, the. Um, uh, the 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 head of UNRWA, he he said that it, he sees Israel as being out to destroy UNRWA, and that this is a concerted campaign, um, and uh, uh, and Israel have called for the resignation of of um, Philippe Lazzarini, who is the director general of UNRWA, and and he's refused, saying that this is this is part of an, an ongoing campaign um, to to delegitimize the only organization. Uh, within the UN, who who is tasked with um, providing humanitarian aid to a beleaguered people, uh, and Dr. Aline, your your thoughts on this? Because this is this is clearly being called out by someone who knows what they're talking about. Yes, in fact, uh, uh, you know it's very curious to see that the timing of uh, targeting UMA was exactly just around the time when the plausible genocide. Uh, decision came out of the ICJ. Mm. Uh, and so there is, of course, a very clear link between these two. Uh, first of all, of course, it took away the media coverage f- away from the ICJ ruling uh, and immediately focused all the attention to this very, very uh, you know, alarming claim by Israel that uh, UNRWA's employees were part of the uh, you know, October 7 atrocities. And, uh, and so essentially... The world's media, uh, you know, rallied to the cause of uh, mostly the mainstream media from the Western world rallied to this cause, and uh, and the the fact that ICJ ruling was being discussed was sort of put to, to, was sidelined. There was one success. The second one, I think, was the fact that uh, most of the uh, evidence that was given to the ICJ by a South African government actually was based on the records of UNRWA. And uh, and it is quite well known. Many people now have talked about the fact that uh, Israel has always been against UNRWA, and this is not the first time that it has come out and given this, uh, you know, has blamed UNRWA for uh, something that it has not done. Israel has targeted UNRWA and its facilities for a very long time, and part of the reason is, as we talked about last time, is that uh, UNRWA in, embodies, uh, in fact, the right of the Palestinian refugees to return. Mm. Because as long as uh, UNRWA exists and it recognizes Palestinians as refugees, the refugees have a right to return. And that mm. means that, uh, you know, the, 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 the default position is that Israel must return to its 1967 borders. And by destroying UNRWA and by defunding and defuncting it, I think the aim is to actually get rid of all the records uh, that were found as a very sound basis for the uh, for the judgment of a plausible genocide. Uh, so I think that that's the, in the background of this. And of course, as you've mentioned, uh, you know there has been yet until now no solid proof, no solid evidence of why and how. Uh, information was obtained. Of course, part of this was mentioned that uh, information was obtained from Palestinian prisoners who were taken into cons- mm. custody and 
you know, uh, that evidence is, of course, inadmissible in any court of the world where you are actually forced to give out information uh, based on very well-known torture techniques. So I think that uh, I think that at this point in time, uh, defunding UNRWA of about half a billion dollars by most governments in the world uh, is, in fact, a death sentence for the Palestinian refugees in Rafah. Mm. Uh, it is, just adds another instrument of torture where uh, when you stop the aid uh, through the only uh, large agency that is able to logistically provide help to 1.5 million people, you are actually sentencing those people to to a death. And, and in fact, there was a discussion when people were challenged about this in the Western media uh, for some Western NGOs to come forward and help the uh, Palestinian refugees. Uh, these NGOs actually went on record of saying that none of them is capable of providing the kind of logistical support and aid that UNRWA can because mm-hmm. of its a very, a very uh, large number of employees. So the Western, agents, Western non-governmental agencies that are actually working in Gaza refused and did say that it is impossible for them to do the things that UNRWA did and that UNRWA is basically the lifeline for Palestinian refugees. Uh, so I think that uh, I think that uh, we all know that this is again another instrument to uh, to ethnically cleanse uh, you know the population in Gaza, because once they're deprived of food and many uh, you know uh, we have seen many clips in which uh, some Israelis have been found to say that uh, by starving Palestinians they hope that they will release the hostages, uh, which is of course not happening, and of course by starving Palestinians and the other possibility is that they just might leave and go to uh, the, go to Sinai or somewhere else, mm. or just need mm. to exist, basically. Thank, thank you, Dr. Lim. And, and just in the last five minutes of the program, we kind of <clears throat> come up to this in describing everything that is that is happening there. I just wanted to very briefly talk about the genocide convention because there's a lot of discussion around genocide and this idea of genocide, and that is the. Um, the case that was brought before the ICJ by South Africa was an accusation of genocide um, on on Israel against the against the Palestinian people. And what what you know what is genocide? And ge- genocide refers to the the killing of a a, a particular people. And in 1946, the United Nations General Assembly recognized genocide as a crime under international law. And what what does it mean? According to the Genocide Convention, it involves acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And these acts include killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the group's physical destruction imposing measures to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, you don't have to have all of those, but any of those um, could, could be um, part of um, genocide um, and, and, with the, uh, and importantly here with the intent. So as uh, very briefly, Dr. Dr. Liam, just the last few minutes, as far as the ICG, ICJ ruling is concerned, some people were disappointed, didn't go far enough in, in condemning Israel and asking for a ceasefire, but in terms of the the meaning of the ruling in respect of of the genocide convention, um, what do you think it told us about the the actions of Israel? Well, this is of course, as the ICJ says, it's a plausible scenario of genocide, and 
you know, the actual conviction of genocide takes a very long time because mm. it, it has a high standard of judgment. And that is why uh, the South African government did not actually go for judgment on genocide, but it asks for preventive measures for uh, stopping a genocide, which is the, the, that, the, that the genocide might plausibly happen. So we are still looking at uh, the South African government, which again came back the day before yesterday and went to ICJ to ask for specific rulings in case of what is now happening in Rafa. But the ICJ went back and said that they have uh, you know, already said enough uh, in terms of prevention of genocide. So, you know, we are now looking only at a part where uh, the International Court of Justice has talked about prevention of genocide, and we are still in that process where the genocide can be prevented, because what now we are looking at is the scale that might actually justify a conviction of genocide uh, by on, on Israel. Uh, you know, I think that uh, many people would argue that if you actually wipe out entire families where you actually finish a gene pool would actually qualify as genocide because in many cases here we know that uh, many families in Palestine have been completely wiped out. So mm. if you kill 100 mem members of a family, you actually basically eradicate one gene pool that had existed before uh, before the before this uh, this um, you know onslaught. And I believe that. Uh, in that sense, in a limited way, genocide might have already happened. But mm. I believe that the that the criteria for uh, you know still includes uh, a scale. And in this case, of course, as you know, we have also been saying that all hostages must be released. Mm. Uh, so I think the International Court of Justice might have th also think thought about that, where uh, you know. Uh, it did not stop Israel from taking military action, and that's what Israel considered as its own victory, mm -hmm. because it stopped short of that. And that's why some of the South African, uh, you know, people mm -hmm. who were on the South African side were disappointed. But uh, but I do believe that this is uh, this is unfolding to be that, and yeah. that's what that is the real worst fear of what yeah. might happen. Thank you very much. And we're just coming up to the end of the first hour of the program. I'd like to thank Dr. Alim for. Uh, this great discussion on on the situation there in in Gaza um, and and the actions of Israel, um, and we will uh, certainly have this discussion again. Uh, Jazakallah, Dr. Alim, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and now we're going to go into the news. Assalamualaikum, welcome back to uh, Weekend World and the Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past eleven on today, Sunday, the eighteenth of February, two thousand and twenty-four. My name is Mahad Khan. In the first hour of today's program. You were listening to a conversation between myself and Dr. Alim talking about the horrific situation in Gaza uh, and the ongoing um, hostilities there uh, by Israel uh, and between Israel and, and Hamas, which have led to the, the deaths of many thousands of um, Palestinian people. And um, you, you probably heard on the news there uh, uh, discussions around ceasefire uh, and the fact that they've stalled. And this entire situation, as we've discussed here on 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 the program, is is so incredibly nuanced and and complex, and and requires now at this stage a a, a proper resolution so that this situation doesn't arise again. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, the Muslim community um, has spoken many many times about the idea of of. Um, justice being the thing that should prevail for all people. 
And we talk about the importance of releasing hostages, uh, of, of re- releasing uh, Jewish um, uh, Israeli hostages uh, by uh, Hamas, uh, but but also that the Palestinian Muslim and Christian uh, individuals who have been taken hostage and made prisoner by the Israeli forces should should also be released. And and we know that many of those individuals are are innocent. Many of those individuals are children. How? Uh, under any circumstances, could you describe uh, it as a, a fair practice to take a child prisoner? Um, but this is this is a normal practice. This is unfortunately something that happens um, every single day. Um, so we're coming up to um, uh, the uh, recorded section of our program now, and I'd like to thank uh, all of uh, our listeners for listening to Weekend World and the Voice of Islam. And we're going to have our colleagues from Rational Religion um, now, and and then a couple of chapters. Uh, from a book. So thank you for listening to Weekend World. You can listen again on SoundCloud if you missed anything uh, and stay tuned and you can um, read more about Voice of Islam on voiceoflam.co.uk or at Voice of Islam UK. Thank you for listening. So the founders of modern Israel admitted in published work separately and together that the Palestinians are the descendants of the children of Israel. And yet today they say the reason why that land is theirs is because the modern Jews are exclusive the descendants of the children of Israel. And they need to come back to their land. This concept of the right to return, it is exposed as effectively a cover for creating a European colony, using religion when it suits it, and using ethnicity when it suits it. Peace be on you. We continue to see horrific images on our phones and of our screens of the atrocities being perpetrated by the Israeli military against the Gazan population. And at the heart of all of this, there is in actual fact a tug of war between two different ideologies and perspectives. One is that the Palestinians are in fact the indigenous people of the land being ethnically cleansed from the land. And the second is that of the Israeli army, which is that the Jewish people are the true inheritors of the land and the Palestinians are simply Arab invaders who who came into the land in the early 20th century. So... In answer to this particular question, we're going to go to the ideological founders of Zionism and see what they had to say about the Palestinian Arabs. So who are these people we have on the screen before us and what do they have to say for themselves? Well, these are some of the founders of political Zionism from the 19th century. And political Zionism is essentially this idea that the uh, contemporary Jews or the Jews that we have today are the direct descendants of the biblical children of Israel and that the biblical children of Israel, uh, it became were promised the um, the land of Palestine, and thus that gives an inherent moral religious right, and eventually they argued legal right, that they deserve that land of Palestine, even if the Palestinians are still there. But the idea that the Jews, today's Jews, are exclusively the children of Israel, which is today the, the, the Zionist parlance, was not something that was uh, believed by the founders of modern Israel. So we have on the next slide, Professor Shlomo well, Sand. I'd like to just go through some of these individuals first. This okay, is, go for it. This is Israel Belkind, who is a prominent um, early uh, Zionist of the um, uh, 19, of the 19th century. Uh, Theodor Herzl as well, who's described in the Israeli Declaration of Independence as the spiritual father of the Israeli mm. nation. Mm. And we have another guy who's a very interesting guy who's really no, never really talked about, but is very important actually. Yeah. His name is William Hechler, who was in actual fact a Christian. 
And he was a very close associate of Theodor Herzl. He supported him enormously. He introduced him to the German royal family. He uh, was a patron of Theodor Herzl. And William Heckler was this Christian Zionist who believed that the time was ripe for the Jews to resettle in, in Israel, hmm. uh, in what, is, what was Palestine then. And Theodor Herzl you know, came to the conclusion that Jews needed their own homeland uh, because of um, according to most narratives, uh, because of the observation of the pogroms, because of the observation of anti-Semitism in Europe, hmm. he himself was a journalist in Vienna. And so, you know, I find it very strange that this political figure is known as the spiritual father hmm. of Israel. He was not a spiritual individual. Hmm. And in fact, he died very young. He died in his 40s before the nation of Israel was even came to any kind of fruition. And he was pushing for the land to be allocated in Uganda, in, right, in, in, yeah, British, yeah. in British, the British, which was a British colony at the time. So it's, um, it's just really interesting, I find, that, um, that he's described as a spiritual father and that he was patronized, patronized rather. He was, he was supported yeah. by William Heckler, who was a, who was a Christian Zionist. I mean, many of the, of early Zionists were in fact atheists, yeah. which belies their ultimate claim yeah. of that they were, that they believe that God had promised them this land yeah. because they didn't believe that God in God and they didn't believe that <laughs> God had promised anything because they believe it was all just myths. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, it remains the case in the Jewish population that they have uh, potentially a disproportionately high number of atheists yes. um, amongst their overall, uh, of, of the people who would call themselves by a religious name, which yeah. is the Jews. Yeah. Um, but that, be it, be it as it may, what we um, come to is, uh, well, what that actually reveals is that essentially this is an ethno-supremacist ideology. Yeah, right? and, it, and it is. And, and to be honest, a little bit of digging and scratching at the surface of the Zionist ideology immediately reveals that. Hmm. I was listening to this rabbi talk about this. And all, you get these orthodox rabbis who you know, they're, they're not in favor of Israel's yeah. existence or, or, or representation of Israel as a Jewish state. They're happy for Israel to exist, as, as are we, yeah. um, but we just don't want it to be an ethno-nationalist, uh, ideologically uh, ideological state, which is only for one type of its citizens, which mm. is, for example, what you have with the um, Jewish state law, which is the statement recently in the last few years that Israel is a nation only for its Jewish citizens, mm. not for all of its citizens. And it has millions of Palestinians living under it as well. Um, of Palestinian heritage. So what I'm, what the, what he said was very interesting was he pointed out that, well, the, the founding right of Israel is the right of return. That if you're Jewish anywhere in the world, or if you mm. have one of four grandparents who are Jewish, yeah. you can claim the right of return to Israel yeah. and that you can do so even if you're an atheist. Mm. You can be an atheist and one of your parents is, one of your grandparents is, it was Jewish. You can claim the right of return. Mm. But if you become, and so from that you ask, well, is it about being Jew, Jewish by religion? And the answer is no, it's about being Jewish by ethnicity. Yeah. But this rabbi made a good point that how can you call an Ethiopian Jew the same as a Polish Jew in ethnicity? Yeah. They're completely different ethnicities. And yeah. then the second point he made is that the moment that atheist becomes a Muslim, yeah. he suddenly can't come into Israel. And you're like, hold on a second. I thought it was about ethnicity. Yeah. So why should my new religion bond? So you're saying the atheist ethnic Jew, yeah, he has a right of return, but when he becomes a Muslim, he can't. He doesn't. He can't come back. He can't come in. <laughs> so is it religion or is it ethnicity? Well, actually, it's both. Whichever one suits the aims hmm. of the Israeli state, which is to create a European-based, hmm. European-centric, yeah, uh, proxy for US and UK and European interests. Yeah. Which is why, for example, you have these Ethiopian Jews who have 
they're, they're Ethiopian, but they have, they are, you know, their, their pedigree as Jews is very clear. Yeah. You have the Yemeni Jews who've had a persistent Yemeni Jewish population there for millennia. Yeah. You can't gainsay that. These guys are Jews in the, in the, if you want to the purest sense, these guys are the Jews, you know, they're mm. the real deal. Mm. Okay. But when they came into Israel, one, they had a heck of a time getting into Israel. Mm. They had a really difficult time getting um, uh, Israeli citizenship, especially the Ethiopian Jews. Mm. And then when they came in, what did we find? We found that in actual fact, the state of Israel had been giving them uh, contraceptive shots mm. to the Ethiopian Jewish women to prevent them from reproducing without them knowing. Mm. Okay, they were, they were giving them Depo-Provera so they couldn't, couldn't, couldn't conceive. And so this is an actual fact. This shows that even though they were forced by their you know, position on the right of return to accept these people into the country, they did not want them to become uh, uh, a significant minority of that country hmm. because of their race. Yeah. So this is an actual fact, this concept of the right of return, it is exposed as effectively a cover hmm. for creating a European colony, hmm. okay? Using religion hmm. when it suits it and using ethnicity when it suits it. Yeah, it's kind of speaking out of both sides of your mouth on that on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, um, and this is what we're going to cover next on the next slide, is that some of the founders of Israel actually um, accepted a much, once upon a time, accepted a much more rational perspective on this. Yeah. And they weren't as exclusionary. So this is Professor Shlomo Sands. He's, a, he's an emeritus professor at Tel Aviv University. Um, and he's a historian. And he's written a, a series of famous books. Um, one of them is The Invention of the Jewish People. And in this extract, he is talking about David Ben-Gurion. Yeah. yeah. The first prime minister of Israel, the guy who oversaw Plan Dalit and the whole ethnic cleansing. He's talking about what he said pre-1929, what was published under his name, along with, uh, I think, Ben Zvi is his name. That's right. Right? So so Shlomo says, so, sorry, Professor Sands says, I'm not his personal friend yet. <laughs> I'm hoping to give him a call there. Professor Sands says, historical reason indicates that the population that su survived, sorry, he's, 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 he's embodying what Ben Gurion was saying. Historical reason indicates that the population that survived since the seventh century had originated... The, from the Judean farming class that the Muslim conquerors had found when they reached the country. And he quotes, to argue that after the conquest of Jerusalem by Titus and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jews altogether ceased to cultivate the land of Eretz Israel, which means greater Israel, is to d demonstrate complete ignorance in the history and the contemporary literature of Israel. The Jewish farmer, like any other farmer, was not easily torn from his soil which had been watered with his sweat and the sweat of his forebears, despite the repression and suffering, the rural population remain unchanged. This is from 1918. Right. So what he's saying here is that it's a myth that actually all the Jews were dispersed mm. after the Jewish-Roman wars and the destruction of the Seventh Second Temple and then the Bar Kokhba revolt. Many, many Jews were killed. Yeah. That's right. But he's saying it's a myth that all of them then, mm. the rest, the, the remainders, Fled. all of them left. Yeah. They didn't all flee. In fact, the people, many stayed there and they became Muslim mm. after, after the advent of Islam. And he continues, this was written 30 years before Israel's proclamation of independence, which asserts that the whole people was forcibly uprooted. That's, that's a key point. David Ben-Gurion wrote the Israel's proclamation of independence. He was involved in that. Hmm. And so he contradicts what he himself wrote in a book 30 years earlier, which is to state that they were uprooted from the soil, hmm. the Jewish people, after Emperor Titus, is uh, ignorance. He hmm. says is a complete ignorance in the history and contemporary literature of Israel. Yeah. But 30 years later, once they've to create this narrative 
of a land which had been expunged from its indigenous population who then had to return and find themselves on that land yeah. again right that in actual fact had to be created as a as a as a narrative myth yeah. to justify the right of return but they knew it wasn't true but they knew it wasn't true right and he goes on to say the two committed zionists this is um ben gurion and benzvi wished to join the local natives believing wholeheartedly that this could be achieved thanks to their shared ethnic origin well, i'm not necessarily sure about that but he says although the ancient judean peasants converted to islam they had done so for material reasons is what uh, ben gurion said chiefly to avoid taxation, which were in no way treasonous. Indeed, by clinging to their soil, they remained loyal to their homeland. Ben-Gurion and Ben-Zvi saw Islam, unlike Christianity, as a democratic religion that not only all converts that not only embraced all converts to Islam as brothers, but genuinely revoked the political and civil restrictions and sought to erase social distinctions. So basically Ben Gurion was saying that there was a reason the Jews converted to Islam. He sees the financial reasons, but you know, that was you know, that's not our narrative and that's not what we believe. You know, we believe that uh, many of those people became messianic Jews in yes. that area. They believed yes. in Jesus yeah. and due to principally in many ways, the preaching of Elijah, mm. they knew that there was someone coming that they, the Baptist. Sorry, I'm using the spiritual terms clear. Yeah, by the preaching, <laughs> <laughs> the preaching of the second coming of Elijah, John the Baptist, um, that there would be uh, a further prophet that would to come. Yeah. And Jesus himself said about this. He said that you, you know, the Paraclete will come, the Comforter, whose uh, message you cannot yet hear. Yeah. They knew that a further prophet was coming. It was mm. spoken about in Deuteronomy 18, and that's why they converted. It wasn't because of the difference between Jizya and Zakat. Okay, because actually the non-Muslims paid a lower rate of tax than the Muslims. Yeah. So I've always found that to be an extraordinary... And they didn't have to defend the homeland either. And they didn't have to fight militarily as a result of paying tax. So he, so he continues, and I think, I mean, I think we can, uh, we can probably, we've probably got to the, the main thing. Why don't you go to the... Um... So the next thing is the interesting thing, which is that <clears throat> the authors, so this is, again, Ben Gurion, if we go to the next slide, please. The, he, he continues, Shlomo continues, Shlomo Sands continues, Histor um which is that the authors referring to Ben Gurion and Ben Zvi underline that the Jewish origin of the Falahin, the Falahin was the was the peasants, hmm. could be revealed by means of a philological study of the local Arabic language as well as by linguistic geography. Hmm. They went even further than Belkind, that was Israel Belkind, who we referenced earlier, one of the uh, founders of modern Zionism, in stressing that a study of 10,000 names of all the villages, streams, springs, mountains, ruins, valleys, and hills from Dan to Beersheba confirmed that the entire biblical terminology of Eretz Israel remains alive as it had been in the speech of the Fedah, the, the peasant population. Some 210 villages still bore clear Hebrew names, and in addition to the Muslim law, there was for a long time a code of peasant laws or unwritten customary judgments known as Shariat al-Khalil, the laws of the patriarch Abraham. Hmm. So he, he he points out that a lot of the Jewish traditions persisted in the local population of the Palestinians, right. which would not have been the case had they been as the uh, as, as the narratives, yeah. which the the modern Zionists now say, which is that they're all Arabs who yeah. came with the Arab conquest. They're not the original Jews who were in the land at the time of Titus. Yeah. So go on to the next slide, and it's very powerful. What uh, so this he is page one eight seven. Do you want to cover this? Yeah. Yeah. He said Benzvi considered the chapter on the origin of the Falahin to be the fruit of his own independent research, and was apparently offended that Ben Gurion appropriated his material. In nineteen twenty nine, that he is just so ironic. <laughs> yes, a uh, intellectual property dispute there. In nineteen twenty nine, he returned to this important theme in a special booklet in Hebrew that bore his name alone. 
It does not differ significantly from the chapter on the subject in the book um, of the two that the two Zionist leaders published together, but it has some expanded materials. If, if you and go basically, to the quote in the next paragraph, that's yeah. So basically, there. he says, obviously, it would be mistaken to say that all the Falahin are descendants of the ancient Jews, but it can be said of most of them or their core. Okay, that's right. So, I mean, this is, uh, and then he later says, the great majority of the Falahin do not descend from the Arab conquerors, but before that, from the Jewish Falahin. Peasants. Or the, yeah, the ordinary people yeah. who are who are the foundation of this country before its conquest, conquest by Islam. So he's saying the great majority of the current peasants, the, the ordinary people of the Palestinians, do not descend from the Arab conquerors, but from the Jewish people who were the foundation of this country so, before its conquest. So the Islam. founders of modern Israel yes. admitted in published work, <laughs> yeah. separately and together, that the Palestinians are the descendants of the children of Israel. Yeah. And yet today, they say that the reason why that land is theirs is because the Jews, the modern Jews, are exclusively the, the descendants of the children of Israel. And they need to come back to their land. Yeah. But I always wonder, it's an extraordinary thing, you know, how can they square the circle between the fact that, okay, let's say you've got a Polish or a German or American Jewish guy. Hmm. He's got one of his four grandparents is Jewish. Her ancestors may have lived. One of, one. remember, ancestry is not, you just have one set of parents. Yeah, it's it diverges, yeah. right? So we've almost, we've almost probably, how far back is 2000 years ago? 80 generations, hmm. right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's about 80 generations. Yeah, it's about three or four generations per year and you've got, you know, you've got 20 years, 20 centuries yeah. there, okay? So you've got about 80 generations. Hmm. Well, cool, blimey. <laughs> I bet that every single one of us has at least one line which goes back to somebody who lived in Palestine. Well, I mean, I think... I mean, I mean, undoubtedly, right? So you put that to one side. Let's say even... Let's say all of her lines went back to Palestine. There's one guy who's one of his grandparents is Jewish. Mm. Let's say all of her grandparents went back 80 generations. They all lived in Palestine. He's really pure thoroughbred from that one line. Yeah. Okay? Right, fine. 80 generations ago. But then you have a Palestinian who's been living in that land... And who still has the keys mm. to the home, which his grandparents, which who are still alive as well, were kicked out of two generations ago. Mm. How can you prefer the claim of the guy who's got eighty generate goes eighty generations back to establish his claim to the land to the person who goes back two generations? How can how can you do that? Because the Bible. No, but he, <laughs> but even the <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> but even even this evidence shows. That this becomes even worse, mm. right? Because the people who are actually there are the, the, the themselves the indigenous people of the land by every single measure, even by the admission of the original founders of Israel. Well, I mean, and Israel know this because there has been a lot of uh, genetic evidence which shows this. In our next slide, we will see uh, one particular um, uh, set of kind of inconvenient evidence. This is from 2001. Journal Axis Gene Research on Jews and Palestinians. A keynote research paper showing that Middle Eastern Jews and Palestinians are genetically almost identical has been pulled from a leading journal. Academics who have already received copies of human immunology have been urged to rip out the offending pages and throw them away. 
Such a drastic act of self-censorship is unprecedented in research publishing and has created widespread disquiet, (laughs) generating fears that it may involve the suppression of scientific work that questions biblical dogma. There's been terrible muttering amongst the academic circles. (laughs) Yeah, they may write a letter. Disquiet. I mean, mean, this is is unbelievable and it shows the extent to which the Israeli elites and the Israeli government are petrified of this this coming out of, of of, of anything which questions their narrative i mean apparently they couldn't censor the 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 writings of their founding fathers yeah right but they'll 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 rip this out of libraries but you know this is one set of evidence which said that the middle eastern jews and palestinians are almost genetically identical let's move on to Well, actually let's just go to the article as well if we have a quote from the article okay so this is the paper the origin of the palestinians and their genetic relatedness with other mediterranean populations and it says in common with earlier studies this wasn't some groundbreaking finding this was common with other earlier studies the team found no data to support the idea that Jewish people were genetically distinct from other people in the region. In doing so, the team's research challenges claims that the Jews are a special chosen people and that Judaism can only be inherited. You know, Jews and Palestinians in the Middle East share a very similar gene pool and must be considered closely related and not genetically separate. Rivalry between the two races is therefore based in cultural and religious, but not in genetic differences. And, and, uh, but the, um, the journal now claims that the article was politically biased and was written using inappropriate remarks about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, as in, inappropriate because it didn't perpetuate an ongoing occupation of people's land. Yeah. Um, and instead said, actually, these people need to make peace because they're fundamentally the same people. Hmm. Um, so that's apparently, uh, that apparently is, is politically biased, but not ripping out pages of a journal. Yeah. Right. Um and actually, more recently, there's been a really interesting tweet which has made a huge rounds. Well, 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 let's let's pause on that because there is a there is something which you, you have to question a little bit, which is that most of the Israelis are look quite white, right? And the well, many uh, of them, many of them, or, or many of them, not all of them, but yeah. but many of them look quite European, yeah. right? And when you trace the history, you find out that if there was a degree of a diaspora, and if there was some people who left Judea at the time, yeah. then they uh, had conversions and they mixed with uh, certain Eastern European um, populations. Uh, populations, and they became Judaized and they became Jewish, yeah. and those are actually. Many to most of those who 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 uh, attach themselves to the identity of being Jews, because as we've already seen, as David Ben Gurion himself said, the Jews, the the majority of the children of Israel, including in Judea, they were they were Jewish, and then well, Gurion didn't say this, but they became Messianic Jews who believed in Jesus, and then they became Muslim. Yeah, right. So if you have a whole group of people calling themselves Jews, and ninety or ninety five percent of them no longer call themselves Jews because they, they it is superseded by their Muslim identity, yeah, then you get this false impression. Yeah, because the the only people left yeah. are the ones who rejected Islam. Yeah. and call themselves Jews. Yeah, but actually that doesn't mean that they were the only people who are part of the original Jews. They are exactly. a small percentage of the original Jews. Exactly, and some of them went down to Eastern Europe, mixed with the Eastern Europeans there which is why the contemporary many to most of the contemporary Israelis do look look genetically distinct and I know many of them will will claim that they are uh, a special people but I can't believe that they are cosmetically special And that they and that they uh, somehow their ancestors did not uh, develop darker skin in relation to the sun exposure in the land of of you know Canaan and the Middle East in general, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's a bit of a contradiction They're there. Very special melanin. Yeah. So how does this kind of the, these newer findings? How does this uh, how does this relate to that? How does so this if explain? If we go to the next that? slide, um, 
we've got there's one this this tweet has done the rounds 3.7 million views wow. um yeah so this is a this is a this is a chap who describes himself myrosio genetic algebra and population genetics I don't know about his qualifications but he makes an interesting points on this thread which i thought was probably worth Mm. showcasing so he he talks about how geneticists have had access to ancient dna whole genome sequences from canaanites israelites judaites for some time now first genetic distances to modern people below i'll be providing lots of information in this thread this is comparing modern day populations to um ancient dna whole genome sequences of ancient canaanites ancient israelites ancient judahites right. and seeing how closely related they are and he makes the point in his tweets genetic distances around 0.02 or under mean a group is practically and genetically indistinguishable hmm. 0.05 implies distinguishability but belong to the same genetic regional grouping hmm. so for example a subracial grouping like northwestern european or eastern european yeah around 0.1 implies the edge of differentiating into racial clusters, you'd say European versus Middle Eastern versus East Asian versus South Asian. Hmm. Right? And if you're 0.3 or 0.4, it's basically you're like subspecies, so a domestic dog versus a grey wolf, right. for example. Okay, So, so 0.02 is basically genetically indistinguishable. Yeah. And as you can see, the people who are 0.02 are Samaritans, Palestinian Christians, Jordanian Christians, you know, Syrian Christians, these are now going to 0.3 now, 0.03, and it makes perfect sense. And he makes a really good point, which is that if the reason it's all Christians of the area hmm. is because they didn't accept Islam and they continue to mix amongst Christians, marry amongst Christians, have children with other Christians. Right. Right. And so they didn't... There was nothing less there was ethnic no, mixing. There was nothing... Because ethnic the ones who converted mixing. to Islam would have no issue with marrying the Arabs. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So, but even then, as you look at it, you find, therefore, that the other group who are, you know, 0 0.05, they're within the same subgroup, you can say. Who are they? They are the Karaite Iraqis, the Lebanese Druze, the Israeli Druze, the Karaite, Karaite Egyptians, Iraqi Jews, Lebanese Muslim, mm. Kurdish Jew, Alawite, Palestinian Muslim. Palestinian Muslim makes it into the group of a subgroup mm. at about 0 0.05. Basically the same people. Basically the same people. But who aren't there? Who's not on this list? Well, the Ashkenazi Jews aren't there. The Ashkenazi Jews aren't there. Right. Uh, and the reason is very and obvious. And are the Sephardic Jews? So a lot of these are Sephardic Jews. So Iraqi Jews, for example. Well, they, cla they classify Sephardic Jew down, down there at 0 0.07. You're quite right. Yeah, you're quite right. Sephardic Jew is further down Sephardic there. But so you've got Iraqi Jews you know, Lebanese, uh, Kurdish Jews, uh, Syrian Jews. So these are people who are, you know, it's very obvious they would be in that same population, but who you don't have here are the European Jews. Right. So this notion that, oh, well, uh, the Palestinian Muslim who has genetically, is pretty much genetically within the same group is at 0 0.05. Yeah. The Palestinian Muslim who's living in Gaza under rubble, yeah. Right, because he's bombed because he's not part of the right ethnic group to re to get the right of return. Actually is part of the right ethnic Actually group. Actually is part of the right ethnic group. But the European Jew, right. right, who's not even on the list, yeah, right, he can have the right of return. Mm. And, and this is the other thing. We talked a little bit about religion versus ethnicity and how it's basically used, whichever one is most most appropriate to maintain the the ethno-supremacist ethno view mm. Israel holds. Mm. Whichever one is most ap appropriate, they use it at that time. If it was about Jew religion, why would you accept a European Jew who's an atheist to come into your country, but you'd block a Muslim Palestinian Muslim? Yeah. The Palestinian Muslim has pretty much all of the same fundamental beliefs, fundamental beliefs mm. as the Jew. Yeah. 
Right. Believes in Moses. He believes in monotheistic. The, he's monotheistic. He believes in the one God. He, he, believes, he believes in, in Moses. He believes in the validity of the Torah yeah. as a means by which people used to reach God. Mm. All right. And it even says in the Quran, it says you, you will be judged by that, which is therein in the Torah. Mm. Okay. Um, no, no Muslim would say that Jews by virtue of being Jews are going to go to hell. No Muslim would say that. Yeah. Right. So there's, well, some might, but they'd be, they'd be incorrect. They'd be incorrect. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a complete, um, it's a, it's a, it's a complete lie. It's a complete fiction. Right. That somehow, uh, these Palestinians, they are being, that they are firstly, that they're not of the right ethnic group or that they're not of the right religious grouping. And it, and it, it outs political Zionism as essentially being an ethno supremacist movement. Yeah. Right. With religious garb. Yeah, exactly. But actually their religious claims don't have validity and even their ethnic claims don't have validity. And I think this is really important because especially when you're talking over thousands of years, ethnicity is not a binary thing. Yeah. It's not yes or no. Yeah. It's a question of matter of degree. Yeah. Right. And if one wants to argue from a matter of degree, the Palestinian Muslims are closer to being the children of Israel yeah. than later European converts. It doesn't mean that the, um, you know, the, the Ashkenazi Jews don't have any claim to being children of Israel. No, they do. They do. They do, they have, do have a claim to be. But if you're going to make the basis but of it. But if you include them, you have to include exactly. the Palestinians. Exactly. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, anti-Semitism is a serious issue, but the way it's being weaponized to defend yeah. criticism of Israel can only make us wonder, um, are genes anti-Semitic? <laughs> I mean, that's the question I want to know. Are genes actually anti-Semitic? And on that note, um, we will catch you in future videos. Peace be on you. This is the third part in a narration of the book A Call to Faith by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed. A Call to Faith, Part 3 Enmity Behind the Veil of Friendship The most distinguished quality of Islam is that it is a living religion. This cannot be said about any other faith. All religions refer back to the events of the past, but only Islam meets the criteria mentioned in the following verse. Do you not see how Allah sets forth the similitude of a good word? It is like a good tree, whose root is firm and whose branches reach into heaven. It brings forth its fruit at all times by the command of its Lord. Surah Ibrahim Such fruit can only be found in Islam and is a magnificent proof of its vitality. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, referred to one such fruit as the promised Messiah and awaited Mahdi. For 1300 years, Muslims have looked to the tree of Islam to bear this fruit and prove its ascendancy over other creeds. And this era was certain to come, as the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had inspired an eagerness for its arrival in the following words. How can Islam perish when I am at the beginning 
and the promised Messiah is at the end. Further, he is reported to have said, I do not know if the period of the beginning of this Ummah is better or the end. After the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, the most earnest desire of the Muslims was to see the era of the promised Messiah and awaited Mahdi. All of them, young or old, literate or illiterate, looked forward to his advent so that once again Muslims would be worthy enough to be numbered among the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, so that the light of God Almighty would once again dwell upon them. And despite the passage of so considerable a length of time, they could once again place their hand in the hand of the reflection and spiritual sun of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, as though they were pledging their allegiance to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, himself. Then would Islam take pride over disbelief, which would bow its head in shame before it. Muslims would call out to the disbelievers and say, You who were taken in by the deception of false religions, look at how our living faith bears fruit in every hour of need. You who weep in the remembrance of your fallen patriarchs, know our prophet is alive and his blessings reverberate in every age through his spiritual progeny. So as the Muslims waited with this hope and expectation, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, made his claim to be the promised Messiah and the awaited Mahdi. The world of Islam clamoured in protest as to how he could rise from the earth when the Messiah was to descend from heaven. How could he be a Muslim when the Messiah was to be from among the children of Israel? All the ulama issued edicts of apostasy against him, accused him of denying the prophecies of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and held him up as an enemy of Islam. Not long after, in light of the testimony of the Holy Quran, the promised Messiah and his followers firmly established the Messiah of Nazareth had died and no Messiah was to descend from heaven. The Muslim ulama, whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said would be the worst of all creation in the latter days, came to realize the Messiah could not be kept alive and there was no contesting the Ahmadiyya community on this issue. So they immediately changed their stance, and now it is generally said, there is no need for a Messiah and Mahdi, as the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is a sufficient guide. Thirty years ago, people would allege the worst offence of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community was that he rejected the advent of the heavenly Messiah. Today it is said his most grievous error was to believe in the advent of a Messiah after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Is the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, not an ample guide, they ask? Those who have eyes can see this tumultuous change which reaches from the east to the west does not emanate from a love for Islam, but from hostility 
to the promised Messiah. As someone once said, what occurs is from enmity to Moavia rather than love for Ali. The same condition affects the Muslims of today who are determined to efface a magnificent virtue of Islam simply on account of their enmity towards the promised Messiah. They think that by this they will be able to halt the progress of Ahmadiyyat, yet they fail to realize they are instead bringing to ruin Islam's greatest excellence and causing the faith to be humiliated in the face of disbelief. Allah the Exalted says in Surah Al-Jumah, It is God who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto them the signs of Allah the Exalted and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom, though before that they were in manifest error, and he will raise him among others of them who have not yet joined them and teach them the same. Allah the Exalted is the Mighty, the Wise. This verse shows the advent of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was destined to occur twice, first physically, and then spiritually, or to put it another way, in a literal and metaphorical sense. The purpose of both these advents was the same, to show fresh divine signs to the people and teach them manifest and subtle interpretations of the Sharia in order to purify them. So in their hostility to the promised Messiah, Muslims accept the physical advent of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but deny his spiritual coming, and thereby falsify the clear meaning of this verse and many others which cannot be mentioned here, as well as hundreds of hadiths and thousands of visions seen by Muslim saints about the arrival of the Messiah over the last 1300 years. Those who deny this may misinterpret the meaning of this Quranic verse or tamper with the hadith, but they cannot conceal one verse after another, nor can they hide hundreds of hadith and thousands of visions. Not a single eminent personality has ever seen a vision regarding the physical ascent of the Messiah to heaven. Conversely, almost all saints foretold something about his advent. To deny the coming of the Messiah is to reject the Quran, the Hadith and the holy personages of the past. What can remain of Islam after so absolute a repudiation? I appeal to all Muslims who grieve over the plight of Islam to recognize this treacherous mischief and look to combat it. If they have not comprehended the truth of the founder of Ahmadiyyad, then what of it? Let them await the hour of God Almighty's blessings. However, they should, at the very least, cease their hostilities which hinder the cause of Islam and the abiding beneficence of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Also, they ought to save others from this as well. Those who reject the advent of the promised Messiah deceive others by suggesting that because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, attained perfection, there is no need for anyone else to come. But do these ignorant souls 
not understand, God Almighty himself is perfect. Yet he still sent the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, because his light had become hidden from the people. When it was essential for the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to come and manifest the light of God Almighty, what would prevent an individual who has partaken of the Prophet's beneficence to come and restore his own light? These people accept the condition of the Muslims has deteriorated. However, they are unwilling to accept God Almighty would offer a remedy for their ills. In their estimation, the decline of the Ummah of Muhammad, peace be upon him, is not a blemish against the perfection of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, whereas they view a remedy to offset this decay as a flaw in his excellence. The unabated continuance of Satan's progeny is not an affront to the Prophet, peace be upon him, but the perpetuation of his spiritual offspring is. When closely considered, those who hold such beliefs, willfully or otherwise, take after Abu Jahl, who accused the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, of being without a son. God forbid. Whereas in the Holy Quran, Allah the Exalted says, Surely it is thy enemy who shall be without issue, and your progeny will ever continue. Whenever a satanic movement will arise, a spiritual descendant of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, will come to annihilate it. The prevailing dogma which denies the advent of the Messiah current in the Muslim world has its origins in Satan and the Antichrist. And this is because it is the mission of the Antichrist to confront the Messiah. And what greater opposition could there be than to convince people to reject his advent outright? Though this movement of denial may appear in friendly garbs, in truth, it is the real enemy of Islam. Ultimately, this will cause Muslims to either succumb to the belief Islam is not the beloved religion of God and he has no regard for its decline, or they will incline towards the idea their current practices and beliefs are free of error. On the one hand, they will lose sight of the need for reform and on the other, they will come to regard God Almighty as unjust, for in their reckoning, he would have abased them through no fault of their own. If any of these two viewpoints prevail, they will deprive Muslims of future success. It is not too late to fight against the movement of the Antichrist. Do not cut the roots of Islam out of animosity to the promised Messiah. Otherwise, know well the rejection of God Almighty's bounties will not go unrequited. He says, If you are grateful, I will surely bestow more favours on you. But if you are ungrateful, then know that my punishment is severe indeed. With humility, Mirza Mahmud Ahmed, Khalifatul Masih II, Imam of the Ahmadiyya community, Qadiyan. This is the fourth part.
in a serialization of the book A Call to Faith by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Enemies in the guise of a friend. Islam has no lack of external enemies, but unfortunately, many foes have arisen from within too. These so-called Muslims encourage the opponents of Islam and fervently draw their co-religionists towards the slumber of negligence. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, In the final days, his ummah would degenerate and the people would be Muslims in name alone. Nothing would remain of the signs of Islam or the Holy Quran, the latter being reduced to a mere collection of words. At this hour, Allah the Exalted would raise someone from the spiritual progeny of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who would once again restore Islam to its full glory. This individual would prepare the foundations for the renaissance of Islam by bringing back the faith and restoring the Qur'an. At that time, the ulama would be the worst of all creation on earth and more deprived of spirituality than any other people. At its inception, Islam was like a traveller with no home, country or nation. In the final days, it would again be destitute and itinerantly wander from place to place with no one willing to give it shelter in their home. These hadiths plainly show a time was to come when Muslims would ostensibly follow Islam while their inner selves would be ravaged by disbelief. Their tongues would declare allegiance to Islam, but from within, they would reject the faith and the Qur'an. Rather than recall people to Islam, the ulama would, in practice, abandon the faith. Hence, they would be the worst of all creation on the face of the earth. Clearly, it would be foolish to assume that at such a point the ulama could be expected to support the truth. Therefore, to protect Muslims from destruction, Allah the Exalted would raise an individual of Persian descent who would return the people to Islam and re-establish the faith. It is also evidence from the Hadith that in the future of Islam, Christianity would be the worst of disorders. So much so, according to these hadiths, Christians would prevail over the world in terms of their strength and might. Indeed, this disorder is intimated in the Holy Quran itself, when Allah the Exalted says, When Gog and Magog are let loose, they will hasten from every height and prevail over the world. It is further clear from the Bible, Gog and Magog are the people of Christianity. 
Gog symbolizes Russia, and Magog alludes to a great power which rules over its territories in peace. That is to say, the British government. In both these nations, Christianity is the religion of royal patronage. So, it is manifest, the problems which were to inflict the Muslims as foretold by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, were to coincide with this disorder, that is, the era of Christian ascendancy. This chaos has already risen. Indeed, it has begun to show signs of decline, as is evident from the state of Russia. Thus it is impossible. The condition of the Muslims would not have deteriorated in accordance with the words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The enemies of Islam, who do not want to admit to its truth, seek to hide it. They soothe the Muslims and tell them they are in a state of health, as they pray, fast, and perform the Hajj. According to them, there is no cause for alarm. They insist the ulama are sufficient to address any faults which may arise within them. But there is no greater injustice than to conceal an ailment from a patient, or to give the task of curing an ill to a mortal enemy. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, In the age of Christian ascendancy, the Muslims would suffer a decline, and their Islam would be a superficial creed. But so-called Muslim leaders tell the people to be content with their affairs, as if there was nothing at all amiss. Hence, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said at such a time, the ulama would be the worst of all creation. Yet they claim that first there is nothing ailing the Muslims, and if any strife should emerge, it will be resolved by the ulama. Not only do they deny the prognosis of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, even when they accept the possibility of a disease, they exhort the people to have it tended to by those whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, declared as fatal to the life of Islam, so that any last remnants of faith and belief may be destroyed. Brothers, know well there is no one who holds more compassion for you than the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He is our spiritual father, and as such, loves us more than our physical parents. What kind of father would speak ill of his children, or refer to his righteous and healthy child as sinful and unwell, except for one who is an enemy to them, or bereft of his senses? Do you think a father like the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, could ever be guilty of such a failing? If this fate did not await them, the Prophet, peace be upon him, would never have said in future times, people would be Muslims in name alone. Again, it is patently manifest, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was the foremost person in establishing the honour of the ulama. He said, The ulama of Islam have been given such honour as no other prophet of the past has bestowed on his people. Thus the prophet, 
peace be upon him, would not have suggested in future times, they would become the worst of all creation, beneath the heavens, without good reason. It is certain, Allah the Exalted showed him the corrupted state of the ulama of today. Otherwise the Prophet, peace be upon him, was so merciful that had a few minor faults attended them, he would not have raised the issue. And in his forbearance and his capacity as the concealer of faults, he would have masked these shortcomings in order to uphold their honour. But he did not choose this course, and instead spoke of their condition in the harshest tones. It is quite obvious he undertook this from a sense of sympathy for the Ummah, for he feared that in the time of their despair they might destroy themselves by turning to the ulama to cure their ills, and in this way wash their hands of whatever spirituality they had left. My brothers, keep in mind the words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, for there is no one else who is as sincere to you as him. Be wary of those enemies who appear to you as friends and who, when they look upon you and your malady, do not prescribe a cure and instead wish to further misguide you. Not only are they your foes, they deny the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The terrible plight of the Muslims is as manifest as the sun. They have squandered their rule, their business and commerce is ruined, their hearts are devoid of knowledge, righteousness has left them, they no longer remember God Almighty, their passion and zeal to follow the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has gone cold. They have lost all sense of sympathy for others. Their spirit of sacrifice has died, and according to the most truthful of all people, only superficial observances of Islam remain whilst its soul and spirit has ebbed away. Had Allah the Exalted not attended to the needs of the Muslims at this hour, and failed in his promise to raise an individual of Persian descent, that is, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community. Surely he would stand accused of betraying his word. But no one is truer to their promise than Allah the Exalted. He fulfilled his commitment at the appointed time and sent a physician as soon as the disease took hold. The onus is now on you to have yourself cured by the recommended physician of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and the one sent by Allah the Exalted. Enter his allegiance and enhance the splendor of Islam, or choose to have your ills tended to by those whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has called the worst of all creation between the heavens and who are hostile to your faith. But know well that no one who turns away from a friend and seeks sanctuary with an enemy can ever prosper. And one who eschews the prescription of Allah the Exalted and looks to man-made remedies offered by people can never return to health. The hour is precarious and the calamity is great. Value the guidance given to you by Allah the Exalted. Be thankful to him for sending a spiritual doctor as and when the disease took hold. Enter into the fold of Ahmadiyyat 
by accepting the claims of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the appointed one of God, so that these days of menace may be averted and Islam may once again witness victory and honour. The orchard of the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, turns barren. If your loyalty is to him, make haste and water its tree with the sweat of your effort. Heavenly orchards are irrigated not by wells, but by the sweat and toil of believers. Wait not for the day when the angels of God Almighty will record your names in the archive of traitors and leave you to confront an everlasting death. Instead, come forward and choose the death of sacrifice so that you are raised to eternal life. May Allah the Exalted be with you. With humility, Mirza Mahmud Ahmed, Imam of the Ahmadiyya community, Qadian, District Gurdaspur, Punjab, Al Fazl, 22nd October, 1933. <laughs>